It is a delight and a joy for my family and myself to be back here at the Pippin Church this morning, our brothers and our sisters in Christ, our church family. It is always a delight and a blessing to be able to carry out the work of the Lord wherever that may be. But certainly to be able to come back to our home congregation is a delight and a treasure and something for which we look very much forward. I would like to express again thanks to Brother Trail for the message last Lord's Day morning. I know without question a very appropriate, a very pointed as that lesson was brought forward, no doubt, some powerful truths set forth within it. And here at the church, as we've so often noted, a host of men who are talented and eager and willing to utilize their abilities and talents in whatever way can be beneficial and helpful for the church as a whole. It is in light of that that, uh, as Brother Roger mentioned just a moment ago, somewhat on the spur of the moment and with a bit of confusion, I might add, in it as well, that Union Hill Congregation in Clay County has, uh, has reminded or at least set forth uh, the need to be there next Lord's Day. And I'm thankful for the eldership in making that possible or allowing that to be possible. I would ask the, again that your prayers be with us as we uh, move toward the end of that particular placement, that Union Hill Congregation, again next Lord's Day morning. It is in light of that an additional announcement I think would certainly be in order. As you know, for quite some time, the church here, in fact, since October of 2008, we have been a sponsoring congregation for the WLIV radio program, specifically on Tuesdays. Uh, I've been privileged to speak on those Tuesday editions of that program now, occurring at about 10 after 10 on Tuesday morning, and the program lasts, oh, around 12 to 15 minutes. Recently, the WHUB, uh, WHUB radio station extended an offer to this congregation to be a part of another gospel radio program. This one entitled A Challenge to Think, and perhaps you've heard it. It's on on Sunday mornings, so about the time you would have been driving here to the church building. It airs right after the 9 o'clock news, so it comes on at about 9.05 and lasts for around 23 to 25 minutes. They have invited us to be a part of that work as well, and our elders have given their uh, full and absolute uh, wish and support for doing that. Beginning next Lord's Day, I will be speaking on that one. I'll, I'll speak once a month, so only once a month. It'll be the first Sunday of each month. The other congregations, as you might know, that participate in it, there's the holiday congregation. They take care of the second Sunday, the... Uh, Double Springs Congregation takes care of the third Sunday, and the Silver Point Congregation takes care of the fourth Sunday. And I understand on those months where there happens to be a fifth Sunday, then there's uh, at least some selection or choice made as to who takes care of it. But anyway, if you'd like to tune in next Sunday morning, at least to hear what the Pippin Congregation is sponsoring, it'll be airing again about oh, between 5 and 10 after 9 next Lord's Day morning and last for again about 20, between 20 and 25 minutes. So again, pray for that work if you would, and hopefully it can reach and do some good in terms of spreading the precious news of the gospel. As we come to the reality of our lesson this morning, Perhaps as you noted in both the title as it's listed in the bulletin, the old paths, the old paths, taken from Jeremiah chapter 6 verse 16. And I would invite us to give some thought for at least the next few moments of our time this morning about some of the features not only of that passage, but also about the applications more importantly for your life and for mine today. For that reason, an introductory slide might well point us 
in this direction. Isn't it amazing how the word old can have various connotations? Some individuals, for instance, don't particularly like to be called old. Furthermore, there are some things in life that seem quite often such that the word old has a somewhat negative meaning. And sometimes it could even be unfavorable. Those who work in computer programming know that when software or hardware, either one reaches a certain age, it won't support the newest needs of the software. And thus, if it's old, it may not be terribly useful, nor may it be terribly good. Quite often, you and I may think back to the stories our grandparents told us in which they drove to church buildings or other places of work in a horse and buggy. And we may think about what that would be like today how much less comfortable it would be, and oftentimes how it wouldn't even be possible to make the journeys that we make today in that kind of arrangement. One might also think about some of the conveniences of life that you and I enjoy that weren't available a hundred years ago. What's old, you see, often has, for in our mind, that which isn't quite ideal. But on the other hand, sometimes that which is old or that which is ancient has a very notable quality. Ask any antique dealer or some olden coin collector, and they look for what's old because that's what is of greatest interest to them and what is of the highest prize in its possession. Of course, as we all know, our interest this morning is not in coin collecting or in horses and buggies. Our interest is in what does the old paths refer to in passages like Jeremiah 6, verse 16. As you can see near the bottom of that slide, this is one place in Scripture where that express phrase is found. What did Jeremiah mean by it? Or rather, what did God mean through Jeremiah by it? What message were the people of that day supposed to learn? And how might it be encouraging to you and to me today? For that reason, let's look back to that context. In the book of Jeremiah, we find some of these concepts. Jeremiah was a rather bold and courageous prophet of God who labored in that period of time near the close of the 7th century and the beginning of the 6th century B.C. The period of time was a particularly challenging one because God's people had wandered and veered from the truth and captivity was directly in their future. Jeremiah as a prophet was sent to them with this message, "'You are headed to captivity.'" you need to appreciate the fact that this is God's means of refining you, but upon your completion of the captivity, you will be able to emerge and return to your land. But the captivity is coming, and it's all because of your sin, because you have failed in your admonition of me. You have forgotten me. Do we not read in Jeremiah 2.32, Can a maid forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. Can you imagine the sense of terror and the sense of sadness? As God told them, you have forgotten me. The one that brought you out of Egypt, the one that gave you this land, the one that has provided you with kings that you have looked up to and respected, and the one who has provided you with the things necessary to sustenance in life. And you have forgotten me. A little earlier in that same chapter, chapter 2, verse 13, God told them, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. They particularly had turned their back upon God, 
But in place of him, they had put in things of their own devices, and in that way, they not only had chosen the wrong path, but they'd ignored God in the process. All of that leads us to some of these comments. God sent time and again messengers that He called the prophets, whose message and whose commission was to tell this people and warn this people and admonish this people to turn back unto God. But those days had passed. Now, captivity was in their future. They needed to appreciate, understand, make use of the reality of that, and understand God's need to purge sin from their life. Amazingly enough, as you look at just a few of the other thoughts about this, it brings us to this context. Despite the fact that God said, This is a nation that obeyeth not God, this warning was given. These words of wisdom in chapter 6, verse 16. Thus saith the Lord, Stand ye in the ways and see, and ask for the old paths where is the good way, and walk therein, and ye shall find rest for your souls. But they said, We will not walk therein. Let's unpack, or at least look a bit more carefully at that passage, beginning with some of the thoughts at the bottom of that slide. Thus saith the Lord, Stand ye in the ways and see, and ask for what? The old paths. You'll notice that that word old has within it the thought of that which is ancient, that which is of antiquity, that which has been tested and proven solid, tested and proven appropriate, tested and proven successful. As for the old paths, God warned them, because in it is the good way. Isn't it amazing, despite what they thought, they may have thought the new way was better. The new way was more progressive, but God said the good way is the old path. In addition to that, consider what else is said in that same verse. We also notice, and walk therein. They weren't just to give lip service to the reality of the old paths. They weren't just to admit, yes, God in a hundred years ago, He did tell us this. They were to walk in it. That means they needed to implement those old paths. Don't just pretend you know them. Don't just give thought they exist. Do them. Work with them. Order your life according to them. Interesting, isn't it, how sometimes even then you see it was easy to give lip service to something, but yet never to fully implement it in life by way of repentance and by way of action. In addition to walk therein, he says, as a result, you'll receive rest for your souls. It is still an interesting thing to contemplate, isn't it? If you follow these old paths, not only know them but do them, it is in that way that you will find and have rest for your souls. I suppose all right-thinking persons would like to have rest for their souls, to appreciate a sense in this life of peace and harmony and tranquility, but in the life to come, of course, the grand grandeur of knowing that there is not torment awaiting, but rather there is indeed a sense of betterness here and, of course, greatness hereafter. If you follow these old paths, you'll have rest for your souls. In light of all of that, notice that these former days were the better days. This is a very important point in that verse, isn't it? God hearkens and brings to mind to the children of Judah the fact that there was a time in the past when things were better then than they are now. 
And we need to follow those old paths that made those days better. We need to give mental assent to them, but furthermore to implement them and do them. I suppose each person can think to former days, were the olden days better? Were the olden days worse? Were the olden days finer in some way? Or did they have a greater sense of godliness about them? I suppose in light of that, it does give a final note of extreme sadness. After hearing what God said through Jeremiah, what did the people reply? We will not walk therein. They weren't interested in the old paths. They had no interest in following the old paths. The old paths weren't progressive enough. They weren't in tune with modern culture. They were not the matters whereby they could feel their need as well as the sense of greatness they personally wanted to feel. It was too restraining, perhaps. You mean I can't do that anymore because God said not to? You mean I mustn't act that way any longer because God said not to? The restriction on the human will is in fact a mighty thing, isn't it? Some do not want to be so constrained. As we've noted on many occasions, some simply want to do what they want to do when they want to do it, the way that they want to do it. Maybe in light of that, we need to give some further thought today to the old paths. We've looked at the passage and its appearance in the book of Jeremiah. What might it say, though, to you and to me today? I would submit that many things could be urged concerning the old paths, but here is one of them. We well understand, do we not, that the church was brought forth in the greatness of the purity and earnestness found in the New Testament. It was created, brought into being, if you please, exactly when and how God said it was to be done. We find in Acts the second chapter that beautiful record of the birthday of the church. On that Pentecost, the first one following the Lord's resurrection, we well remember how that in Jerusalem it came to pass exactly as Jeremiah, or rather as Isaiah had said it would, in Isaiah 2, verses 1 to 4. We remember those apostles were baptized in the Holy Spirit that day and they preached the unsearchable riches of the greatness of Christ. As they did so, there were some pricked in their heart. They understood well that in essence the blood of Jesus was dripping from their fingers. They cried out in verse 37, Upon being pricked in their heart, men and brethren, what shall we do? There was a monumental sense of urgency within them. We are guilty of killing the Son of God. We are guilty of, in fact, handicapping as far as they knew the great work of God in this world. They cried out to Peter and the others, What should we do? Thankfully, Peter, by inspiration, had the answer, Repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. You see, they knew they were sinners. About 3,000 of them, upon crying out, it says in verse 41, They that gladly received His word were baptized, and there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. In light of that, we see then without question the church began with absolute purity. In Ephesians 5, 27, it's described like this, That He might present it to Himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Purity in terms of its organization, idealness in terms of its structure. There are no mistakes to be found in those characters of the church. 
But yet we learn in light of all of that that there today, as well as there have been in the past, those who might well label themselves as change agents, those who are not satisfied with the church of today, they aren't satisfied with the church the way the Lord made it. They aren't satisfied with the structure that the church has the way Jesus, in fact, set it up. They want to change it. And their thinking is it doesn't address the needs of modern 21st century America. People need something different. The church is old-fashioned and outdated, they say. The church is ill-equipped to do that which it needs to do to serve the needs of a modern age. And thus they, without shame, will claim we need to make some changes. May I submit to each of us, we need to give some careful thought about that. God again says, seek the old paths. What is new, you see, in terms of the church is not true. The church was established roughly 2,000 years ago. And it is that old-fashioned character which is set forth within the pages of the New Testament. What are some of the passages that you and I encounter as it speaks about the nature of God's expectations? Does He permit humans to change it, tamper with it, modify it, alter it? We find, in fact, passages like these. Whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks unto God and the Father by Him. Didn't Paul say there in Colossians 3.17, do all in His name? That is, what He has not authorized, you and I must not venture into the performance thereof. We also notice in Hebrews the 8th chapter, See thou make all things according to the pattern showed thee. There has been a divine pattern, and is it not absolutely affirmed that God intended us, if we are to be the church, to follow that pattern? The amazing set of features about it points us to, in fact, what so often is the means whereby those change agents are working. Did you notice one of the things commented earlier? It's their desire to shape the church so that, at least in their estimation, it will meet the needs better. But what was it Paul said in Romans, the 12th chapter? Let's make note of that text and then revisit this point again. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The business of the church is not confirmation. It is not to shape itself, to pattern it after what the modern age acclaims is needed. The church's business is to set forth the truth of God and hopefully to transform the world by the message of the truth so that they will live as God would have them live and, of course, entertain an eternal hope in heaven as a result thereof. The business of the church is not to turn it into what the world says it ought to be. What authority does the world have to tell the church what to be? What authority does the world have to dictate what the structure and worship of the church should be? Hasn't that been one of the problems? When individuals will say, but I want worship structured so that I feel a bit more entertained or I feel a bit more lively. Perhaps, friend, the problem is not with what the church does, but the problem is with your heart. 
We need to have a heart prepared to receive what the Scriptures tell us must be done. What did Paul say as he made record of these points in Galatians 1 verse 10? He said, If I should then be the servant of the world, I should not be the servant of Christ. James affirmed it like this in James 4 verse 4. He said, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. You and I need to appreciate that just like God through Jeremiah said, Seek the old paths. Where we have book, chapter, and verse for the things that we do in worship. Book, chapter, and verse for the things proclaimed from the pulpit. Book, chapter, and verse for the things that guide your life and mine as those interested in following the words of the Lord. Again, as we conclude that slide, how powerful are the old paths. I'm reminded of the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, the second chapter. As you and I have often noted in our study, Paul was a brilliant person, schooled, educated, sharp mentally, but yet, did he rely upon those things when he came to the time of preaching? As he began that second chapter of 1 Corinthians, he said, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God, for I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men. It would seem to me that is an overwhelming statement of the very point that you and I have given consideration to this morning. Our wisdom, our approach, the church doesn't stand in the wisdom of men, for if it does, it's wrong. We need the old past when it comes to the church, don't we? But not only with respect to the church, we need the old past in some other ways as well. Consider with me for a moment the matter of the home. The home as it is so often appreciated, at least in our modern age, Oh, what changes seem to be wrought in that very manner. God was the creator of the home, wasn't He? He made the man. He fashioned the woman. He brought them together and married them. He form-forged that opening home and gave all the commandments of Scripture about its behavior, how it was to conduct itself, how the wife is to conduct herself, how the husband is to behave himself, even how the children are to, in fact, have their role in the family too. In every way, God's instructions are easy to appreciate. It is in light of that, though, that you and I consider in our day, there are some who look upon that very, very differently. There are some who look upon it, in fact, as if, again, change needs to be blowing in the wind because the old biblical description of the home doesn't suffice for the modern age. At least men tell us that. According to them, the Bible, as it describes the home, doesn't meet the needs of the modern 21st century home. Culture's different. Society has changed. The home must do things differently than what the Bible says, according to what men say. As you and I give thought about that, you'll notice just a few of the things. And so, men now tell us, well, homosexuality should be accepted. These are people too. Ought not they have the right to make a home? Others will tell us a polygamist home is fine. Others will tell us a wife need not be submissive to her husband. That's old-fashioned, inappropriate, and not to be done anymore. On and on and on that list might go. 
again, waging warfare against the old past set forth in the details of the Bible. As you and I give thought about that, our televisions, for example, bring or stream into our homes programs that have these messages ingrained within them and often, not even subtly, but very openly and forthrightly. Several years ago, a concerned viewer wrote to the ABC network about one of the programs that ABC was airing at that time. The person who responded to that, one would at least have to admit they did take the time to respond, but I suppose you and I would be greatly bothered by the tenor and by the statements of that response. If I may paraphrase some of it, basically the ABC person said, you need to get your nose out of the Bible. It's an old book of nothing but stories and myths, has nothing to do with the modern age, and we are broadcasting programs that meet the needs of what society and culture finds most impressive and needful. And yet, that kind of program, they did it, you see, intentionally. They bring and sketch these characters in there so that they are exactly are broadcasting messages like that. So that culture will eventually accept it. And they can be on the cutting edge. My friends, the Bible still says the old paths with regard to the home are the better paths. It's there where the good way is found. As you can see on some of those statements at the bottom, if our homes aren't constructed according to the old paths, that means they're constructed on these newfangled ideas of man, ideas which won't stand the test of time, ideas which will crumble and fall under the pressure that's no doubt going to be borne upon them in the days that lie ahead. For you see, as one gives thought to the old paths, God says, where is the good way? Husbands need to love their wives, and wives need to love their husbands. Children need to respect and submit to their parents and obey them. As all of that is found in passages like Ephesians chapter 6 and Colossians chapter 3, it speaks about the kind of home that perhaps you and I can remember from days gone by that we were reared in or that our grandparents told us about. And yet today we often see a culture that wants to jettison or abandon all those things and try something else. Isn't it somewhat sad God says, stand ye in the ways and see, and ask for the old paths, where is the good way? We need our children to appreciate those old paths so that they will become husbands and wives, mothers and fathers who respect the old ways and also will forge their families following the pattern of the Scriptures. The amazing set of features about all of that perhaps could be summarized in a last segment to the lesson this morning. For just as surely as we've seen the change agents who wish to change the church, and we've seen those who have an agenda to change the things of the home, it's also true that there's a related feature that might well simply be described as godly living. As you think about the nature of godly living, there seems to have been a time when individuals just simply had more respect for what was basic godly kind of living. Perhaps you and I can remember instances and times when language was different. You didn't hear so much profanity and cursing, at least not to the degree we seem to hear it openly today. Sexuality was considered very different. It's not to say certainly that all people were acting as they should in that way, but at least they had the decency to conceal it more. 
now you and I seem to live in a time when there are no limits to the openness with which sin is broadcast. Do what you want, when you want, and when you want, and you have no right to tell me to restrict or conceal myself in anything that I do. People, you see, seem to feel that there is an inherent right that they have to as openly live in as ugly and sinful a way as they want, be it their language, be it their activities of life, the places they visit, and all the while they expect never to be challenged on it and never to be questioned about it. But may we rest assured that the Bible says, again, that there are these things known as old paths. At least for the next few moments, let's give some thought to just a few of the ideas I've listed there. There was a time, it would seem, there was at least a keener appreciation that lying and stealing and dishonesty was simply not appropriate. That that wasn't healthy for a family, wasn't healthy for the church, and it wasn't healthy for society. But now it would seem very differently that in the interest of getting ahead and in the interest of making sure I have sufficient job, promotion, and money to take care of myself and family so that I'll have what I want, I'll just do what I want even if that means lying and dishonesty. You may remember a book published in 1991 in which a survey, or at least the results of a survey, of the American people was presented. And in that survey, quite frankly, some questions relating to this lesson were asked. Questions like things relating to, to lying and dishonesty. Well, over 80% of those that answered, believe it or not, said they openly lie and do it purposefully. Lying. No wonder that puts each of us in a position to ask, well, how much can I trust my neighbor? Is he going to openly lie to me just to get rid of me? Openly lie to me just tell me what he thinks I want to hear? We seem to be living more in an age that's like that now, certainly than many decades ago. As you think about that kind of dishonesty, that of course inches its way into the marital union as well. How many commit adultery? Well, again, in that book, far more than you and I would like to think. The sadness of all of it is, that's not the old past. For this book says it should be one woman for one man for life. And this book details the fact that dishonesty, Ephesians 4, 25 and 26, is something God condemns. And this book describes marriage as honorable in all and the bed undefiled. But whoremongers and adulterers God will judge, Hebrews 13, 4. We also notice there was more an interest as it related to features concerning authority. There was a time when dad and mom would tell a principal, if Johnny gets out of line, he deserves a whipping, and you feel free to give him one. And now if you do, teacher may well be sued, the superintendent may be sued, the county may be sued, because Johnny didn't need to be whipped. I don't believe in that. You need to encourage him in some way besides that kind of behavior. You see, the old paths again pointed out, spare the rod and spoil the child, Proverbs 13, 24. The old paths pointed out that, in fact, you don't love him if you don't discipline him in that way. You see, there is a movement afoot, isn't there? A change whereby the, the old paths aren't respected quite so much any longer as one gives thought to its emanation in terms of respect, you might consider 
this shamefulness in terms of some kind of behavior. There was a time when it was a disgraceful thing for a teenage girl to be unwed but yet pregnant. Now, who gives it even a second thought? Not only is it broadcast all around us, if I'm not mistaken, there's even a TV show that actually lifts it up as something to watch where these girls who have made an enormous mistake, and of course the boy did too, and yet now there's a whole TV show about it where we learn who they are, why they did this, and now how their life has changed. It's nothing but an absolute tragedy. And yet as we glorify that kind of behavior, and as we think about in society ways in which not only is it not looked upon as disgraceful, doesn't it say something about the old past? Oh, how God said, stand ye in the ways and see and ask for the old past. Those old paths perhaps bring us to some of the bottom statements on that slide. We live in a time when scientists and others tell us we have, we have advanced. This modern culture is so much better than the cultures of the past. It is so much more refined. It is so much more capable and able. And there's no question that we have technology that they didn't have. And there's no question that we have means to accomplish things that they didn't. But as far as the basic tenor of the heart of man, are we any better off than we were before? Ultimately, all the inventions and devices that humans are able to build don't lead us to consider the greatest matter of all. What about the heart? In Jeremiah 3.25, same book in which we've been studying this morning, God said, as He spoke about the character of, again, the people of that age and the meaning that it may have for us today, we lie down in our shame, and our confusion covereth us, for we have sinned against the Lord our God. We and our fathers from our youth even unto this day, and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. You see, sin is shameful in that age and in this age. We can't lay our hopes upon technology. It's got to start with the heart. And as we seemingly have, are moving away from the old past, one of the features that's coming along with it is we're like a ship without a mooring now. Anything is open and welcome and to be done. It reminds us much about Jer uh, Judges 17.6, doesn't it? in which there we so easily wrote, Every man doeth that which is right in his own eyes. You see, people are coming to the point where they just want to be their own judges for all matters. And so anything in their eyes is fine. One by one, as all of that happens, we are moving further from the old paths, and that's not good. For the old paths of God are the paths for the church, the paths for the home, the paths for decent, upstanding, godly living. Is it any wonder that in principle we have more than one statement in the Old Testament that reads, Leave the landmarks alone. God has set some landmarks, boundaries. In the book of Proverbs, He said, Don't bother them. May I submit that God has established some landmarks in terms of the church, in terms of the home, in terms of godly living. And humans, if we're wise, won't tamper with them. In fact, we will uphold those landmarks and turn time and again ourselves and all whom we can influence to them. These are the bases and these are the proper and right approaches. Today, if you find yourself amiss from the old paths, 
if you find your life not directed by them. Here is a very, very brief summary to the state, to our lesson today. In terms of the old paths, that's the only reliable paths we have. For anything man has written, you see, has to be new. This book is now the last thing written in it almost 2,000 years ago. It's the old paths that we must follow. Are you following the old paths? Are you a member of that old church that Jesus established? Matthew 16, 18. Are you living a life of open godliness, encouraging yourself and others to live as you should in the words so often acclaimed? If today we could be of assistance to you to become a member of the Lord's body. Again, if you've never become a Christian, it must begin with a deep-seated conviction of the truth of these scriptures, that the Lord is exactly who He said He was, and that He is the one and only way to heaven, John 14, 6. If you believe Jesus to be the Son of God, why not repent of the sins in your life, those sins described as these new paths that are leading people astray from God? Repent of them, meaning change your mind toward them. Change your life in terms of pursuing them any longer. And then confess the great name of Jesus as the Son of God, and then very simply and humbly be baptized for the remission of those sins. Upon so doing, live faithfully until death. Revelation 2 verse 10. If today we could be of assistance to you in that way, it would be our joy. If you have become a member of the body of Christ, but no longer are faithful toward that old path, the old church, why not come back to that first love today? We pray with you. We pray for you. And as you earnestly petition God for forgiveness upon our prayers, then of course God will forgive you as well. If we could be of help to you today in your pursuit of the old paths, let's close our lesson one more time by noting that our response ought to be so different than theirs. Remember, they said, we will not walk therein. That is a surefire way to end up in a devil's hell. May we all walk in those old paths. And if we could help you do that today, why not let us know in the way we could help while together we stand and while we sing.